in that context, as somebody who's an ethnographer of popular music, in particular of low status, low prestige, subcultural pop music, um, you know, so not quite pop music, but, you know, subcultural, non, you know, you know, lowbrow, I guess, uh, music, uh, which has also relatively recently become very globally visible, right, through the EDM boom since 2010, right, which has been a very mixed bag as far as, you know, like, you know, because now people will sometimes hear that I'm doing EDM and assume that what I'm doing is that, right? In the sense of like Skrillex in, you know, at Electric Daisy Carnival, which, you know, no shade is not what I do. There are these moments that many of us have as not-quite-yet scholars when we're still in school. We've already gotten some sense of what we might want to study for the rest of our lives, but it's not certain yet, it's not fixed, we haven't you know, settled on a dissertation topic. We find ourselves reading a journal article for a seminar, or you know, sitting in the back of a mostly empty hotel ballroom hearing a conference paper, and we have that crucial realization. Wait, you can study that? I'm Will Robin. I'm a musicologist, and this is my podcast, Sound Expertise, where I talk to fellow music scholars about their research and why it matters. My guest today is Luis Manuel Garcia, a lecturer of ethnomusicology and popular music studies at the University of Birmingham. His area of research is exactly the kind of thing that, when I first started learning about music academia and being a part of music academia, was not something I thought you could study or that you were, no like, allowed to study. Intimacy tourism, and sexuality in electronic dance music. As Professor Garcia will make clear, his path towards his fascinating and important research was a complicated one, made more complicated by long-standing attitudes in his field about what are and aren't considered legitimate topics of study. We'll talk about his path towards becoming a scholar, the cultural meaning of techno-tourism in Berlin, the ethical and logistical challenges of doing fieldwork at fetish parties, and much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation and that it helps you think anew about what ethnomusicology is and what it can be. So I was wondering if we could start by talking a little bit about how you kind of got into the scholarship that you do. Um, you have a phrase in your bio on your website that I really like, which is um, he has managed to turn his love of electronic dance music into a PhD in ethnomusicology. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you did that and like what, what your journey from being someone who loved this music to someone who wrote about this music as a scholar? Sure. And, you know, fair enough. Good question. And there's like the verb managed wasn't there by accident. Like that, that does <laughs> speak to a fair bit of work. Mm-hmm. Um, that went into that or a you know, fair bit of effort that had to go into it, but also speaks a fair bit to how even, you know, myself now, I sort of look back at it and kind of wonder, like, how did I do that? Um, you know, that there is a certain amount of wonderment. Uh, I don't know if wonderment's the right word, but, you know, um, I am I, also surprised to find myself doing what I'm doing, um, I think is a better way of putting it. Um, yeah, I started off as a, let's see, I started off in the late 90s. Um, 97, I think, was my first year in undergrad. I started off as a classically trained music nerd kid. Um, 
I had already been in the rave scene in my hometown of London, Ontario, as well as Toronto, Detroit, um, that whole area um, for a few years by then. I think I had started raving around 95. Um, so I'd already been deeply involved in electronic music, techno house, et cetera, the stuff that was, especially the stuff that was hot at that time. Um, and I was very deeply involved in the rave scene as kind of a cultural movement beyond uh, just the music. Um, so that definitely came before in lots of ways. Um, but I had grown up my entire life, you know, being sent to, you know, piano lessons to, you know, I went through a so-called choir and orchestra school when I was a kid. Um, for, you know, for those who are from from London and listening, St. Mary's, I went, I was sent to St. Mary's um, for a few years, learned violin there, learned, you know, we were, there was like a choral program there. So we would, you know, do, do choral singing and so on. So, and I continued all of that kind of training right through to the end of high school. So when it came time to go to university, um, I managed to get uh, permissions, maybe not the right word, but like the uh, the blessing of my parents to go and pursue music, you know, for a post-migrant family, you know, where the, there's a real, you know, my, my parents immigrated from Peru and from Colombia um, and they immigrated, um, you know, with, they, they were highly educated, but they came in at a time in the 70s when um, that still meant you had to retrain quite a lot. And they they came from countries where the currency was pretty much, you know, worth nothing in North America, especially at that time. So they came, they couldn't bring much of the kind of fiscal resources that their families had, um, which on my father's side was pretty much none. Um, you know, but on my mother's side, you know, she did have her family in Peru did have resources to like, you know, um, support their kids as they were starting careers in Lima, but in Canada, none of that, you know, was, was helpful. So like, you know, all that considered, um, we all, me and my siblings all, you know, had this expectation to grow up and be, um, you know, uh, to go into professions, maybe, um, ideally medicine, which was one that was the, uh, pretty common, especially in my mom's branch of the family. Um, and, you know, but there was this one, uh, there was this one uncle of mine who had really been into music and had been forbidden to you to do music, had been actually, um, you know, had his instruments taken away and destroyed, oh, you, wow. know, uh, you know, lots of physical uh, abuse around that as well from, from my grandfather. And so my mom was very marked by that. And so she, you know, she was, she actually put all of us into music programs as we grew up um, kind of here and there. Uh, and it sort of, it stuck with my, with my brother quite a bit. And then it stuck, especially with me. Uh, and I'm the one who sort of ended up going in that direction fully. And so when I got the blessing to sort of go on and pursue music, the condition was, of course, you still have to do all of your, like the, the Canadian equivalent of like AP, you know, um, I like the sort of end, end of high school qualifying um, sort of studies or, or credits, earned credits. I had to do all of the science and maths ones, all the requirements to go into science, but then I could go into music if, as long as I did those requirements. I see. Um, so I went into uh, undergrad already with like a long kind of classical training of a certain sort, but very much of a, you know, post-migrant family sending their kids to, you know, what seemed to be upper middle class white European repertoires and so on, right? Uh, and then me also deeply embedded in um, the the rave scene by then a couple of years in. Um, I started off actually at Indiana University, interestingly enough, just I was just there for a couple of years, but I was there um, in their performance program as an undergrad studying early music. So they had this, I went there because they're one of the few, the only places I think at the time that had an undergrad um, pathway that specialized in early music. Um, was there a tension for you between like, like, I mean, in high school, but also like going to an early music program, like between rave and 
Gamba or whatever. Like that seems like uh, something that is not necessarily right. shared among a lot of underground no. music majors. Yeah. yeah, no, there were, well, certainly, um, you know, for me, there were just two separate worlds at that point. Like part of why I'm giving all this background is really because it took me hilariously long to realize that these two worlds could, could meet. Right. But that I'd have mm. to do the work to make them meet. Right. right? I see. So okay. like, you know, in undergrad, particularly at in the Early Music Institute, um, you know, there were people who were aware of raves, um, and I, there, there was there was actually ironically one Gambaist from California that I knew. Um, you know, if you're out there, Colin, you were great. Um, who was actually a raver, but because he was from the West Coast, he was from San Francisco at a time when the West Coast was one of the big, you know, boom areas for for raving. Um, and he and I did go to like a couple of raves in Bloomington, Indiana, and in the, you know, believe it or not, uh, back in the day. But that's, yeah, that is an exception. Otherwise, um, otherwise, th those are two very separate worlds. And that's just how we understood it anyways. Like as I went through high school and so on, I was going and getting, having these music classes. Uh, and I was being told by the people who were training me, right, that if I wanted to have a future in music in any sense, um, as a performer, which is initially how I started, um, it's, it's through this pathway, right? It's through this kind of, you know, classical Western art music pathway. Um, and there is this other world that I would go to to party and also to make friends. Like a lot of my friendship network is built out of, uh, um, out of the rave scene, especially in my hometown um, and pretty much everywhere I've traveled, to be honest. Um, and in those, you know, in those contexts, especially early on, there was no, you know, there was no talk of kind of like a professional career in electronic music in, in that sense, right? The, uh, especially not in a sense that would take you through uh, a kind of academic educational path, right? The only way to build a career there um, or the, the only way that I saw career paths really was from, you know, from kids around my age who weren't pursuing academic career paths and who were instead either going to vocational school to get kind of sound technician training. And then on the side, they would have their own projects, you know, producing music or DJing, you know, or the, they also had, you know, they were building sort of a, a side, you know, a side gig, so to speak, that would support their music careers. But either way, the, the kind of the academic uh, postgraduate educational pathway was not really visible there. And certainly coming from a post-migrant family, um, there was no way I wasn't going to college, right? Like that was right. definitely right. not, you know, right. and I wanted to, I wanted to go to college. So, you know, I was also, you know, um, I was a big medieval music nerd. Like I was also super into um, actually some, early Renaissance choral stuff, and then lots of 13th century French vocal polyphony. These were things that totally interested me, you know, while I was at the Indiana University for those couple of years, I developed a really deep interest also in um, early 18th century harpsichord, well, 17th and early 18th century harpsichord repertoires, especially d'Anglebert, you know, and I still retain love for all of these, these repertoires um, and was very dedicated to them, you know, so I did two years in Indiana University, it turned out to not be the place I needed to be um, around performance tuition, also I was realizing performance actually wasn't really where I wanted to go, I was more interested in studying the history of it and the music theory of it and so on. And the undergrad program at IU was so laser focused on producing um, performers. It's a bit of a performer factory um, that it was, I found it really, really lacking. I was looking at what I would be studying in, in year three, um, you know, and potentially year four, none of it, you know, it, it didn't feel enough. So I transferred to University of Toronto. So back kind of back home, um, also back to a place where education was a lot more affordable. It was definitely costing a lot for me to go to an American university at that moment. Um, 
And uh, I spent the rest of my undergrad years doing a BA in history and culture of music, which was essentially their kind of like baby musicology degree. And then went from that into an MA uh, in musicology also at U of T. And it was during that MA that the, like the, the transformation happened, so to speak. It was during that MA, I came in there wanting to be a you know, medievalist musicologist. I had already sort of figured out which repertoire I was going to be working with. You know, I was deep into, um, you know, I was, I was, um, you know, I was, for example, like doing uh, notation study. Um, I can't remember now with whom, but you know, I was looking into the the Corsican, that um, French Corsican repertoire, Torino J29, and transcribing it. It was all these musical notational puzzles. I was very into this, and then uh, I took an ethnomusicology module or class. Sorry, I've been in the UK so much. I now I keep on saying module, but um, I took a course. Um, uh, in ethnomusicology, it was one of the, you know, these days we'd kind of cringe at it because it was the sort of like one course to cover all of ethnomusicology for all of the MA students. And it was very much presented as, you know, yeah, it, it was, it was, uh, here's a bunch of different cultures yeah, and their exactly, music. Exactly. Exactly. You know, exactly. So, so, you know, but at the time it was, it was very cool. It was definitely the, f the first I was seeing of any of this. I mean, like at the time, I mean, U of T, uh, you know, bless them. They continued to actually be quite conservative around a lot of things, um, uh, curriculum wise. Um, but at the time, especially they, you know, they were teaching, you know, this would have been 2000 to 2002, three, four, um, you know, and they were teaching the musicology as this like recent, you know, this, this recent arrival that was like, you know, um, uh, brand new and world changing to them. And that many of them actually weren't teaching, that only a few were, you know, were teaching. Uh, and this would have been, you know, turn of the 21st century. So it was in the context of that. Sorry, this is a long story, but this, you know, no, it's, it's a somewhere. good story. Yeah. Um, but it's in the context of that, that, uh, you know, that this ethnomusicology uh, course was really, really new and really, really different. Um, and it especially was giving me the space to ask questions about musicology as a discipline and especially the kind of, you know, the, the canonical formations and so on um, that I wasn't really getting to talk about much in other classes in that program at that time. I've been told that things have changed since then, but like at the time that was really the only outlet for me to be thinking about these bigger questions, especially while I was sort of on my own reading um, you know, reading like post-structural theory, uh, you know, post-structuralist theory rather, um, digging into a lot of the other kind of capital T um, cultural theory stuff that wasn't being delivered much in, in the classroom, but that I was getting right. just out of personal interest, especially mm. through things like, you know, my own personal interest in queer theory, um, you know, uh, and other sort of avenues like that. And I did go out of my way to take, I think, one or two comp lit courses, um, although I think I had to audit them. Uh, they're, you know, again, the siloing of sub of sub subjects in, sure, in sure. Toronto was really strong. Um, so th with all of those things sort of came together so that um, at the end of my ethnomusicology course, I was, uh, you know, I had to write like a final paper, a term paper or something like that. And it had to involve some kind of ethnographic research um, or some, yeah, some kind of angle of, of that sort. Uh, and I got permission from my professor to, um, to do a kind of an ethnographic profile of um, the club scene in Toronto. Right. I mean, in a very small, small sense, like I, I looked, I did like a comparative study of two or three clubs, I think, um, in particular, two or three clubs where the rave scene had sort of gone to once the the actual kind of um, conventional or, you know, historical rave events had, were no longer possible in Toronto, right? This is after the sort of police crackdown that happened all over North America that made conventional raves for a good long while, just logistically impossible uh, with, you know, without 
uh, without very uh, direct police, police interventions. It was in that moment, I did this profile of a couple of, of clubs uh, and I got a very good mark on it and I got very good and encouraging feedback, you know, so this is, you know, a lesson to the difference that good feedback makes, uh, you know, or, or positive reinforcement right, to your right. students. But yeah, I got some good feedback. And in particular, I got some feedback from the professor saying like, look, um, this is interesting. This is, uh, you know, this is very new to me. Uh, and I don't know of anybody else really doing this within ethnomusicology. This is like an area that you could, you could explore, um, not quite on your own, but you know, that you, you, there's a lot of space. There's a lot you of empty space. Kind of in here that you can, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. And so it's with that, that in my last year of my MA program, so it was a two year program in the last year of my MA program, as I was putting together like an MA thesis, I did a piece, uh, I did like a long thesis on um, The Soft Pink Truth, which was a side project of Matmos, of, of Drew Daniels from Matmos, um, that uh, brought together some, you know, disco influence, uh, a few other, you know, soul hip hop influences um, to bear on the the usual Matmos sort of uh, slice and dice approach to to musique concrète and, and, and sound. Uh, and that became my sort of application piece as I was applying to PhD programs. And interestingly, I applied to, I don't know, six, seven programs, uh, at least seriously, six, seven programs at the time. And I did about half of them, I applied to the historical musicology pathway just because they seemed to be um, the most open to things like cultural theory, queer theory, et cetera, et cetera. All these things that I knew were going to be a bit of a hard sell, right? Um, and then for the other half were ethnomusicology programs that I had found where the ethnomusicology, the way that they had framed the ethnomusicology program looked like it would be a very flexible ethnomusicology that would be open to the kind of thing I wanted to do, especially ethnomusicology of popular music, which is, you know, now more common, but in that moment, it was still, you know, a, a, a sort of a, a, a subset of a subset of a subset. Right. You know what I mean? Doesn't have a comfortable home in either kind of side no, of the division. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. And so, I mean, I'll, I'll leave it at that because I could, you know, go on for we'll, a while. We'll but that's pretty much that. where I yeah, got yeah, there. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. That's where I got there. That's how I got there. Okay. So, yeah. you know, at that point, you start doing field work, which you've been, I guess, doing for, I don't know, over 10 years now. Like, what, what are the kinds of questions that you're interested in answering with field work in an electronic dance music scene? Like, what are the kind of issues that have come up for you um, that are kind of became as you began to do more and more work central to what you could kind of bring to ethnomusicology per se. Right. Um, so that's changed over time a fair bit, I would say. Um, so I started off wanting to really focus ethnographically on the, the kind of like the everyday punter, you know, the, the dancer. Um, so in other words, I, I had a sense early on as I was reading what little was out there um, in, in the sort of studies of electronic dance music, um, there was initially, at least, there was there was sort of a split. There was there was a fair bit coming from kind of cultural studies that focused a lot on um, the DJ um, and the producer, and you know tended to, um, in my view at the time at least, tended to be somewhat hagiographic around, you know, um, or tend to be tended to to focus for me a little bit too much on, on you know on the decks so to speak on you know where you know the the location of um, of where the music was coming from in particular tended uh, to tended to um, resonate too much with or follow too much the these tropes that I was already finding annoying within rave subcultures around um, 
you know, a techno shamanism, which was a term for a while, uh, and uh, which was, I, I kid you not, I saw a paper given on techno shamanism <laughs> in 2000 in Toronto with nary a layer of, of colonial critical uh, distance. So right? like the um, DJ has this kind of like genius figure who's making everyone on the dance floor like yeah. move in sync or whatever. Precisely. So, you know, they're on the one hand, it, it's the, the DJ as the puppet master, if I'm going to go to the extreme, right? Um, the DJ as the, you know, the dom top, if we want to go through kind of BDSM framing right but also the dj as yes as this genius figure i think part of this was you know part of what i was already beginning to find annoying i think there although i didn't have a way to frame it at the time was the some of the early work some early culture work going on there to try to reserve for the dj the same kind of genius creator position that you know like the conductor you know, had in early 20th century classical music or something like that, you know, or the way that like certain soloists in jazz were also being, you know, um, canonized, you know, in, in both senses of the term, right? Um, uh, you know, in as a, as a strategy, right? As an uplift strategy, as a strategy for, for upward mobility. Um, and yeah, so that graded me. Um, and to see that already sort of bubbling up, percolating up into, um, into some academic work, all of that inspired me to want to focus a lot on the the you know the yeah the everyday you know there is sort of not what's the everyday but the every party you know the mm -hmm. the the, yeah. the more banal the more ordinary actually i guess ordinary is maybe another way of putting it um so not the celebrities not the people who usually get um uh credited with making the party happen so to speak but the folks who fill the floor the folks who you know who show up the listeners you know and so on uh, so i definitely started it with that and it's not maybe not a surprise then that my my first project my phd project was about um stranger intimacy um you know i was really interested in and i continue to always be interested in um stranger sociability right the way in which people who don't know each other find ways to interact you know for better for worse sometimes with you know it sometimes goes awry but nonetheless that is the thing that interests me. It's also a thing that's extremely hard to capture ethnographically. So that is, I did myself no favors by choosing that as my first um, research project, but I did learn a lot about, you know, non-conventional, not so much non-conventional ethnographic methods, but just, you know, working with what you've got, which is sometimes very limited options or, or you know, very you know, tough situations when you want to capture or maybe not capture um, uh, data. Uh, but yeah, I started off, interested in and stranger sociability, interested in um, people on the dance floor or people, you know, waiting in line for the toilets, waiting at the bar, chatting each other up, like these sorts of things, uh, and how that linked to things like music and bodies in the room and affect and sexuality and so on. Uh, and then more recently, though, in the last, um, the last few years, let's say maybe the last 10 years since, you know, I finished my PhD in 2011 and then moved to Berlin for a postdoc for several years. I kind of bounced between a few different postdocs in Berlin. Uh, and then from there moved to the Netherlands for a couple of years to work and then finally here to the UK. Uh, and so through that whole period, I've been, you know, I've retained links to Berlin. I've been deeply involved in the Berlin scene as well. You know, although of course with the pandemic this last year, a lot less so, or only only at a distance. Anyways. So yeah, um, like one of the, I mean, it's, it's really interesting to just think about all these different kinds of stages of your field work. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about one of the kind of field sites that you've written about, um, which is the Snacks Club in Berlin, which is uh, this dance party that happens at Bergheim. Um, and, you know, I really enjoyed reading your article about it. Can you talk a little bit more about what Snacks is, the history of Snacks, and, and what it was like to do field work at Snacks? Of course. Of course. So, um, hmm. so 
I can give a fair bit of, of um, what's working you know, detail and texture to this. Um, but I'm, I'm trying to think of what your listening audience is and to, how, to what degree <laughs> does this need to stay? You know, can this be somewhat 18 plus or can this? I, uh, please, 18 plus is great. I mean, I, I don't I don't know how you to explain snacks without going 18 plus, but maybe right, it's like fair a, enough. Exactly. a video right, so that they make for kids or something. <laughs> exactly. exactly. No, if you if you know, if you're if you're I wouldn't have asked kid, about snacks if we if I if, thought we were a fair point. Yeah. That's a fair point. You know, like so, yeah, if this if there's any like budding musicologist, budding musicologist out there listening who's like under 18, you know, please, please be a good kid and turn off. Right? Yeah. Well, my six month son is upstairs taking a nap, so I won't play this one for him. Fair enough. Fair enough. No, but um, so snacks. Uh, so snacks, uh, spelled S N A X, um, is so it was. That's the name of the original event series, right? So series of parties. Um, that to some degree begat um, Berkine, right? That that was the the precursor to Berkine. One of the precursors. There's kind of a couple, um, and you can do a little bit of googling around this. Berkine being like the most mythologized club in Berlin. Yes, oh, yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, let me give a little bit of context there. You're right. Um, so you know, Berkine, the it, as you say, the most mythologized club in Berlin. It's been running since about 2004, in, in some you know, with a few different iterations, um, and very much was at the center of the um this move to um or the the rise of techno tourism in berlin right and so on whether it drove you know or played some central role in that 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 um rise of techno tourism it certainly was like you know it's the thing that people reported back about most right that you know in those early years like I, there was a a couple of years where i was doing um ethnography in paris for my for my dissertation uh and my, for my phd project and i was studying i was doing a bit of like a local study of the the minimal techno scene in paris and i had all of these informants all of these like con consult consultants you know contacts and friends really saying it's really cool that you came to Paris to study us and our scene, but like, why are you not in Berlin? Uh, and it took me, you know, a couple of, uh, about a year to finally f get the resources together to go to Berlin and check it out. Uh, but in that time, many of the people that I was talking to in Paris were going back and forth, you know, to and from Berlin and they would come back and they would talk about, well, there's this party and there's this club and, you know, you have to go here and you have to go there, you know, and there was like maybe a handful of venues that were always, always reported back. And one of them was Berghain. And it's notable for being a club that, um, at least in those early years was very explicitly a gay club. I wouldn't say queer because it was primarily gay men. Um, and it, it was a club that was centered. It is a club that is centered uh, initially around um, a sort of sexual subculture, you know, and uh, gay male sexual subculture. So in other words, you know, there were very active dark rooms where sex would take place, right? Um, uh, it was also not uncommon for sexual activity to also be visible or, you know, witnessable um, on the dance floor or even like by the bar from time to time, you know, there was, and certainly everybody got a kick out of that, right? That this was, this became the venue where that kind of thing was possible. Uh, and not just for gay men, but also then eventually for uh, straight folks, you know, and and, and women of various, you know, uh, orientations and so on. Um, it became a bit of a, I wouldn't quite say a melting pot, but it became a place that increasingly became less just for gay men and more for a mixed, sexually mixed crowd. Um, 
uh, and you know, with and not without controversy, right? There was, there is, especially especially now these days. If you were to go to Berghain, the dark rooms are either empty or they're actually filled with uh, straight couples. Um, like it, so there has that there has been kind of a gentrification that's taking place there, um, but it was slow in coming. And for the for, there was certainly like a golden first ten years, let's say, where um, where things were um, very much as as they've been you know nostalgically remembered. But anyways, snacks started off in the late nineties as um, a sort of itinerant party. Um, so a party series that would go from, you know, to different places. Um, it's kind of came up in the nineties during that period in Berlin where former East Berlin was still very much the wild west, especially when it came to property, right? That, that the government was still trying to figure out who actually owned or who technically now owns some of these buildings. Cause many of them were, you know, co- you know, collectively owned, owned by the state or something along those lines, or had been taken away post-World War II from its original owners and now needs to be returned, etc. So in particular, the city center, the eastern part of the city center, um, had uh, lots of buildings that would eventually get, you know, assigned to somebody for ownership. But for the next couple of years, you can just squat in there. And the police had much bigger things to deal with than, you know, than shutting down a party. So there were, there were clubs that, that subsisted on that, um, you know, and there were also a lot of clubs that, that would do temporary contract. Like they would, they would rent out a space for like two years legally, um, you know, but essentially the, the property owners would do this or the people managing the property would do this until they figured out, who owned the property or if they were the owners until they could figure out how to sell it as well, right? Because there is all this property speculation going on in the 90s, but the speculation was happening way before the economic revival. So there is this interesting kind of weird delay that that made it possible. It made it possible economically for there to be this really thriving um, uh, club scene with all these amazing locations right in the center of the city, Um, you know, for, for sometimes for nothing, you know, or for next to nothing. So, Snacks as a party, it was a fetish party from the very beginning, and that's actually a detail that I'd for, that uh, I'd forgotten from the beginning. You know that snacks was very much fetish forward, and bear kindness carried that onward as well. So snacks was a, a fetish party that would happen at a few different locations. Um, one of the one of the ground rules was that you had to be dressed in some form of fetish to get in. Um, you know, and you eventually, by the time that I was going to do some visits at snacks and you know um from year to year once it became a yearly event um i managed to get away with wearing like sports outfits like a like a soccer outfit or something like okay. that because i did not have the money to buy extremely expensive leather or anything um or any of the other kind of fetish outfits that they had and also you know none of those none of those seemed worthy in, in the investment as you know sure. somebody who was not sure. into any of those those particular things um but uh i did have to be pretty creative um as far as you know presenting myself as as a f- somehow fetish you know um or at least at least with an affinity to some sort of fetish polarity uh so what snacks is now is snacks is once now twice a year so usually once around easter haha and once around halloween right like these are these times of year are very deliberately chosen um berghain will shut down most of its spaces uh and reopen so to speak as snacks like they'll try to essentially revive um you know the world of snacks for a day or often it's more than a day it's like you know a couple of nights running that kind of a thing um and there are some notable differences, like there are some notable changes to 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 um, the usual Berghain experience, right? Like Berghain, from the beginning, has uh, the Berghain as a building, as a, as an actual venue, um, is very much a like polyvalent, polymodal uh, building, right? Like it has 
you can go in through the front door on a normal night and there is the main club floor itself called Berghain. And then there's a second floor that usually plays more house music and so on called Panorama Bar. Uh, more recently, they've also built Halle, which is a kind of ambient slash listening area, so on and so forth. But the three original kind of spaces in the building um, when they moved into Berg the Berghain building um, were Berghain itself, Panorama Bar, and the third was the laboratory. And the laboratory had a separate entrance around kind of the side and the back, uh, and that was a dedicated sex club. And it was separate. So like they 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 kept the doors sort of separate. You could go in through the the Berghain Panorama Bar entrance and just go and have your club experience. There still would be dark rooms and there'd be lots of sexy stuff happening, you know, um, and a fair bit of that often was migrating up from the laboratory. That was like very common that, um, you know, men would go to the lab early in the night um, and, you know, have their fun and then, you know, change out of their outfits and then head upstairs to continue partying uh, for the rest of the night in Berghain Panorama Bar. And so what's different with snacks or what the special thing that, that Berghain would do to, to sort of remember snacks was they would close the doors between Panorama Bar and Berghain and Panorama Bar would remain open for the, like the straights, quote unquote, you know, um, and for, and also for the non-men, because it's, it, it was a, uh, a men only um, space and continues to be, right? Um, to some controversy now, uh, before it was less so, but now it's become more, I think, an issue of discussion, right? Um, but the laboratory itself had always been a men only event or a men only space. Um, and so when they turn this into uh, snacks for a night, essentially, they, you know, they're closing, the door between Berghain and Panorama Bar, but then they open the doors between Laboratory and Berghain. And so then you have the the idea is that the, the crowds that would normally be showing up for the laboratory, you know, uh, would then be able to sort of take over Berghain for a bit and remember to some degree, recall this earlier period where everything, uh, you know, in where everything happening with snacks was already, always already fetishy, right? You know, right, and always right. already sex positive involved, you know, lots of sex happening everywhere and so on. And certainly that is one of the differences having done some of the, the, the field work there. One of the really notable differences is that uh, when they do, when the laboratory does open up into bear kind for snacks, the, the sexual activity on the bear kind floor is no longer limited to the margins and to the black the, the dark rooms rather, but happens right you know on the dance floor and and sometimes it's in, there are some like every every time that they do a snacks event they'll usually decorate the place in some way that's part of sort of the the um, the you know part of the appeal I guess right that they'll do like a thematic like one year it was all construction sites you know and the kind of fetishism around like construction men you know uh, another year around like sporty things for, and so for the sporty year for example they put together a sort of um, like a elevated mini boxing ring in the middle of the dance floor in Berghain you know uh, which of course as an elevated surface with lots of visibility immediately the folks who wanted to have sex and be seen having sex were up there immediately doing you know you know, um, showing, you know, showing off, right? And there were a lot of, all of these ways in which they would curate the space um, in their kind to sort of cue people that like now sexual play is expected and is allowed in high visibility spaces and not just on the margins. So what was the goal of the, like, what was the scope of the field work at Snacks? Like, what were you hoping to find? Like, and what, like, what are the kind of conclusions that you draw from, from something like that? Right. Uh, well, so initially, um, you know, it, so initially, part of that part of the fieldwork there was just wanting to record something that seemed really unique, right? Like something that that had this confluence of factors that I didn't see anywhere else. Um, 
And so sort of wanting to record it for posterity to in a certain sense was something I wanted to do. Um, notably, you know, when it comes to ethnography there, I wasn't like wandering around with like a pen and pe you know, and a, a, like a notepad, you know, or like a little dictaphone trying to like interview people at, you know, at the event. I did a lot of just very sort of like passive observation, um, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and also like kind of informally talking with folks that I knew because I was already embedded in the scenes. I just kind of could go socially and, you know, talk to folks, see what was going on, observe and so on, uh, and then go home and make some notes, um, you know, but from memory, you know, rather than doing, you know, trying to record anything, which obviously is highly verboten in that space anyways. Um, and then I managed to track down some folks from those scenes or who've performed in those spaces, who, you know, who are, you know, and in one case who's worked in those spaces um, and interviewed them, but like, you know, off stage in a very different context, right? Um, you know, in often like by phone or in their homes or what have you. Uh, and and so what I was, you know, I, I wasn't necessarily going into it looking for a specific thing, but rather I was interested in on the one hand documenting it and on the other hand also thinking about, um, I mean, I guess one of my research questions was just what makes this possible, right? Like, like how is it that this sort of thing um, is is uh, is feasible, you know, just logistically, um, you know, and and for me at that time when I was doing the research on this, which was when I was living full time in Berlin, um, that was when I was also trying to work as much as possible on my techno tourism uh, project. So this very much was a out, like a, an outcropping or a branch of that project as well. So I was thinking about uh, mobility. I was thinking about tourism. Notably, one of the the details that I missed here is that snacks is at, like snacks is a Europe wide event within the sort of gay male fetish sex positive sort of communities. Um, yeah, it's a destination event, so to speak. Um, you know it. You, you notice it if you're flying um, to and from Berlin around that weekend that like suddenly the, the whole airplane is full of men, you know, of a certain age, you know, and with all the kind of subtle markings of fetish life and that kind of a thing <laughs> underneath. Um, you know, and and not it's Europe wide at least, and then you also run into people who are like, I came from Brazil. Like they, you know, there are people who really do fly in from very far away um, for these events. Uh, so there's a tourism and mobility aspect that I was also interested in. So I mean, you mentioned with with regards to your field work that there are like things that are very obviously forbidden from happening. Uh, for for, and I'm wondering if you can talk a little about like not recording is both a logistical challenge and an ethical challenge. And like a lot of the kinds of challenges that you've written about really, really persuasively that have come up in your field work are not ones that we study if you take your field methods course in ethnomusicology generally. So can you talk a little bit about like what nightlife field work looks like in terms of these challenges and how you navigate them and, and what issues that they, that they bring? Right. Yeah, absolutely. There's, I mean, there's a lot of them and I, and the, I guess, you know, the the challenges, I guess I'll start with like, what's the gap between um, what we're conventionally taught in fieldwork methods and then what I, what I was facing and what a lot of other people who do nightlife research are facing, um, you know, and, and that is the, um, you know, you're, you're going into spaces of um, leisure and recreation um, where you, um, so you're going to spaces of leisure and recreation where um, often your intervention, so to speak, um, as a researcher is, you know, pretty much unwelcome, right? You know, like maybe tolerated, but certainly, you know, not expected. Um, so, so from an ethical point of view, right? Like they're not expecting to have an encounter with a researcher. So you need to think about that. You're, you're moving into a space of recreation and leisure rather than, let's say, for example, traditional ceremony and so on, um, right? So there's the... the 
the after it's not the, so the rules um, are harder to figure out when it comes to you know just how intrusive can you be so to speak or how conspicuous can you be um, and how and, but also how in, uh, conspicuous or intrusive should you be ethically speaking right but also like who do you ask for permission for to do what right like you know there's like there's the club managers you know there's security but there's also the artists and there's also the people on the dance floor and so on right so there's the there isn't a clear head person you can speak to around around these sorts of things, uh, but also more importantly, I think the thing the thing that really um, the the thing that really impacted me, of course, was uh, the, these sort of club space, nightlife spaces. They're spaces where people are trying to have fun, um, and in fact, have gone there to have various forms of fun. So you need to be thinking about not ruining their fun, essentially. So, like whatever methods you're choosing, you have to make you have to be thinking about like, will this you know, is, is this going to be a buzzkill, right? Like, am I going to be interrupting them while they're enjoying things, right? Um, and in what cases is that okay? And in what cases do I, you know, would I rather, you know, um, just observe from a distance, so to speak? Um, you know, there's also questions around consent, um, like, you know, how much stuff can you actually, or how much data collection can you actually do on on site, so to speak, as the event is happening, especially how much of the kind of conventional interview-based stuff or, media capture stuff how much of that can you really do when um this is a space where people get drunk and get high and and so on and also this might be a space where people are um you know uh experimenting sexually or with you know experimenting with with um different gender presentations and so on right which again these venues especially in queer subcultural venues and these sort of underground venues these are often refuges these are often um you know, safe spaces to use the, you know, more recent use of the term. Um, these are spaces that are designated and reserved for forms of um, experimentation uh, of identity of, you know, play uh, and, and, but also practice forms of um, letting go, you know, of get cutting loose of maybe putting yourself into, you know, making yourself vulnerable or exposing yourself in ways that you would not otherwise. And, all of that is possible, you know, or at least the, the, the risks associated with that seem manageable in those venues because those venues, you know, offer and promise a certain amount of protection, right. anonymity, confidentiality, you know, um, all these sorts of things. And so you have to really be thinking about how to not, you know, mess with that, right? How to not, you know, accidentally expose somebody, but also just how to not make somebody feel unsafe or, you know, um, that kind of a thing as well. So how did you actually, I mean, how do you answer those? How have you answered those questions in your work? Like in terms of you've now published a lot about all this stuff. Um, right, right, right. I mean, so definitely, as you can imagine, um, I don't, so I don't go to, you know, um, dance music events, uh, you know, with a clipboard uh, and a name tag and try to like flag people down for, for interviews, right? Um, you know, and there are some folks who do try that and like it's, they get interesting results. Like it's not, you know, it's, it's not impossible to do. But it's not one that I feel. Uh, it's not one that I feel particularly good doing. Um, like I definitely do feel like I'm interfering with people's fun. Fun if I'm doing that. Um, you know, I tend to. Uh, well, initially, first and foremost, I tend to present myself first as a participant. Like I am. I do participant observation in the sense that, um, you know, when I go to these events, if I do make the acquaintance of somebody, if I, if I, you know, especially when I was doing the, my research project, my first one on um, stranger intimacy, right, where I'm trying to study precisely these, these moments of people getting to know each other or not getting to know each other, but just interacting anonymously on the dance floor, right? Um, I, you know, I would go and remain open for interaction and I could, I could have interactions, but I wouldn't be taking notes of any sort. Um, and, you know, depending, and again, there was like a whole kind of 
sliding scale of, of considerations here. But, um, you know, at the end of the night, I would go home before I would go to sleep and I'd do a big brain dump. I would just, so I'd, I essentially would be working from memory. I'd write down as much as I could remember. Um, it turns out if you do this pretty regularly, I, I was doing this at like two to three events per weekend when I was in Paris, wow. for example. Um, the, you, you do actually like extend your memory capacity. Like it is, it, it, I can't do it anymore, but at the time I could, I could recall, you know, several, like not a whole conversation, but like verbatim several interactions, so to speak. Right. And, and, um, but only as long as I would write it down immediately afterwards, like that, 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 that kind of memory uh, decayed really quickly. So but that's, I, it, I mean, yeah. what time of day are you writing this down then? Mm, yeah. Like, like, Five six in the morning. Okay. You know? uh, All right. Yeah, no, yeah. I do it, and I would, I would, I would do. I mean, that's like, obviously part of the yeah. challenge that you've written about yeah. too, which is Absolutely. like doing field work in the middle of the night. Yeah. No, it turns. Yeah, exactly. It turns your 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 circadian rhythms upside down, right? You, know, you just, to some degree, unfortunately, this this does maybe say that there's something about um, electronic dance music or nightlife field work that is more for the young than for the aged. You know, I say as I'm in my 40s now, you know that. Um, like some of the shit I pulled in my twenties, as far as, as you know, ethnographic adventures are just not possible physiologically now for me. Right. <laughs> but, um, but even so like in those early years, I was doing mostly that kind of a thing. So I'd be doing um, participant observation where I present myself first and foremost as, you know, a partier, a punter, a dancer, you know, and I would go up and socialize and interact. Um, and then I, when I would go home, I would take notes um, as much as I could, as much as I could remember. And those notes would either fully anonymize people if I didn't have any way of tracking them down or, you know, keeping, keeping notes on them. Uh, and I would think about how I describe them to make sure that it's not identifiable uh, while still nonetheless interesting and engaging. Uh, and if it were people that I already knew in the scene and so on, then I would be using pseudonyms and so on, at least early on. And then once it was time for me to write things up, then I would often then go back to those people and, and confirm both, you know, um, permission, you know, get consent, but also to confirm what kind of, whether they want a pseudonym or their real name and so on. Um, but then like I had that as one thing. And then the other major pillar of field work for that kind of nightlife field work was just making connections through what I, what I call kind of trust networks. So, you know, being embedded nets in the scene, getting, becoming a familiar face. So showing up to events over and over and over, even on my own, but you know, like, especially when I dropped into Paris, for example, or into Berlin uh, the, for the first time and I had no, you know, nobody knew who I was. I just showed up to events until I was a familiar face and people started talking to me. Um, and then eventually, then I started telling people who I was and also the fact that I was a researcher, that I was here, you know, and I'm a raver, but I also am researching some of this, you know, and then we'd have great conversations, none of which would be on the record, right? This would all just be socializing, socializing. Um, and then once people, once I had established some sort of a trust, then I would start inviting people for face-to-face -face interviews. And those would always be like either at their place, at my place in a cafe, um, you know, something like that, but not on the dance floor, right? Like those, so those two worlds, I kept very Keeping separate. Yeah, right, yeah. Right, right. yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, the fieldwork methods issues, but also kind of ethnomusicology of popular music are still these kind of things that are seen a little bit. Well, I guess just, you know, there's all of this controversy that's been happening in ethno in the last year. You've been very kind of active in, in, <laughs> in litigating kind of what ethnomusicology is and should be. <laughs> like, how do you conceptualize yourself within the discipline and where you want to see the discipline go based on all right. of this work that you've been doing for, for a long time. Great. That's a good question. Uh, and it's one I've been thinking about a lot as you, you know, as you rightly point out, you know, um, especially in the, with the events of the past year in the Society for Ethnomusicology. Um, 
you know, I've, um, from very early on, I've, I understood myself to be very much, um, you know, neither here nor there, very much a hybrid sort of scholar in all sorts of ways, um, for good or for ill, right? In the sense that on the one hand, I could, um, I, and I still can sort of pull from dis different disciplinary approaches and so on in ways that I think give me an advantage in some ways, but also, uh, you know, and I was sort of warned of this when I was in grad school that, you know, I was choosing a kind of project and a kind of set of uh, parameters and so on that made me pretty much unhirable in classic ethnomusicology job searches, right? You know, you know, they'd ask me what my world area is and whether I can run the the gamelan ensemble, right? You know, and you know, ironically, I can't play gamelan, but I'm not going to run it. Um, you know, but also, uh, you know, the I I define myself as somebody who studies electronic dance music and mobility and tourism and queer things, uh, and affect theory and so on. And so far, I've been mostly doing that research in North America and Europe, but that does not limit me. Like, I'm not. I don't define myself by world area. Um, and in any case, the kind of world areas that I've been working on so far are not the kind that are hot and sexy in the colonial logic of um, ethnomusicology, right? And so I've always found myself on the outside there in various ways, right? As like the, uh, when I'd go to ethnomusicology conferences in my grad school years, um, I'd get a lot of like, um, you know, kind of benevolent, but nonetheless condescending kind of curiosity of the like, oh, isn't that neat? You know, and, and, you know, and like, I wonder what you'll do with that in this discipline. Like, you know, like gen, you know, genuinely kind of confused as to like, what are you, you know, um, not, not so much telling me like, you don't belong here, but although sometimes that was the, the intent, but more just saying like, mm, you're how fascinating you are. Right. But also how much of a puzzle you are. Yeah. Uh, I'd go to popular music studies, um, conferences and feel a lot more at home there, but, um, you know, but I really want, I wanted to do the kind of, you know, ethnographic methodological stuff that ethnomusicology um, offered, right? And I wasn't getting that, uh, I wouldn't necessarily get that in a popular music studies sort of domain. So in that context, as somebody who's an ethnographer of popular music, and in particular of low status, low prestige, subcultural pop music, um, you know, so not quite pop music, but, you know, subcultural, non, you know, you know, lowbrow, I guess, uh, music, uh, which has also relatively recently become very globally visible, right, through the EDM boom since 2010, right, which has been a very mixed bag as far as, you know, like, you know, because now people will sometimes hear that I'm doing EDM and assume that what I'm doing is that, right? In the sense of like Skrillex in, you know, at Electric Daisy Carnival, which, you know, no shade is not what I do, sure. right? Um, so I've, I've felt, um, you know, marginal is maybe overly dramatic, but I definitely felt like not centered in any way in, in any of these places. Um, and I remain committed to trying to make society for ethnomusicology and more broadly ethnomusicology as a discipline. So not just that society, but, you know, globally speaking, ethnomusicology, um, a place where I can, you know, thrive and not just thrive, but a place where I can see myself, right? Where I can uh, recognize myself. Yeah. yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much. This was really great. Thank you for having me. Many thanks to Luis Manuel Garcia, who is a lecturer of ethnomusicology and popular music studies at the University of Birmingham for that awesome interview. If you have questions or thoughts about today's episode, you can tweet at me at Seated Ovation. If you like our music and production, please check out the work of our amazing producer, D. Edward Davis, on SoundCloud at Warm Silence. Many thanks, as always, to Andrew Del Antonio for transcribing our episodes to make them more accessible. And as sad as I am to say it, season two of Sound Expertise has almost come to an end. Next week is our penultimate episode. 
an interview with musicologists Michael Wee and Eduardo Herrera about Cold War patronage in the American avant-garde. See you then. <laughs>